bring up our good friend Jeff Lee. Uh, Jeff was kind enough. Uh, I, I haven't taken a break for a little while from the pulpit. I knew we had a men's retreat. So I said, we, we, need to, we need to get rid of old and tired. We need to bring in young, hip, and chic urban. And, and I was like, who can we find that, that could do such a thing? Jeff Lee, of course, <laughs> Jeff Lee. Jeff is the RUF, Reform University Fellowship Director for Christopher Newport University. And uh, a fantastic, uh, you know, one of the great things about us, we, we, we ordain our folks. They go through seminary. Uh, you know, and then we put them on the college campus. And so these guys furnish not only reaching out in a very challenging environment, but also spelling guys like us every now and then when we need someone to come in and preach. So Jeff's been here before, seeing you as a ministry we give financially to. Uh, we're proud to be a part of it, and I'm very glad that uh, Jeff's here with us today. So, Appreciate it. Thank you, brother. Thank you, brother. You got it. You got it. Well, hey, thanks for having me, my friends. <laughs> Woo! Hey, you know, we got, we got to make sure you're doing all right, brother. <laughs> See, I don't know about the, the young and the hip, but the hips are working on this one. That's right. <laughs> hey, we love you, though, brother. We love you. And uh, we are here to support you physically and spiritually this morning. That's right. Well, let me tell you all, it is uh, a privilege uh, to be here. And um, thank you all for having me. Um, if, if you want to learn a little bit more about the ministry, what it is we do, Reaching College Students for Christ, and how we go about that, there's information that's right in the back. Please snag one on the way out. This is just a reminder if you guys can be thinking about us, uh, praying for us. Um, we need it. We want to see the Lord move through these young people's hearts who are at a very uh, moldable time of their life in college, and they're often asked, uh, what is God's will for their life? And we get to guide them towards the Lord during this vital time. So pray for me as I'm doing a lot of outreach, a lot of evangelism, and discipling a lot of the young men and women who will hopefully one day be in your shoes serving the church in beautiful ways. So pray for me as we build up the church and the young people as well too. So thank you for this opportunity to preach for you guys as well. We're going to be looking this morning in the Gospel of John. So John chapter 1, I know it's in your bulletin. There's a text there if you have a Bible as well. We're going to read uh, these 14 verses in just a moment. But let me give you a highlight of what we're going to read first. And then we're going to dive in. We're going to be looking at the prologue, the beginning of the greatest story that is honestly ever told. It is a love story of a God and his people. It's a story of life and death. There's also light and darkness, this imagery that's contrasted in this passage. But it's also a story of, of our God's loss for our win. Now, it doesn't stay there. That's the good news of the gospel. But there is some losing so that others might win. And there's going to be a little bit of our call to also model that as well, in our marriages and our friendships and our life as well, so that God's glory might win out, his name might win out, not our name. Our marriages might flourish and not necessarily our pride. But we're going we're gonna to see as we see the greatest story, the beginning of the story, we're called to model this story as well in our own lives. And so we're going to see that as we dive in. And so, if you will, read with me silently. I'm going to read out loud. Let's look at John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. The Apostle John says to us, In the beginning was the Word, 
and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Pray with me and let's dive in. Lord, you are faithful. You are kind. You are gracious. You are full of truth. Thank you for giving us, Lord, this, this recounting of your person, of your work, Lord, of the, the very words that you would speak to us in your gospels, Lord, of your commands. Lord, you breathe life into us through your word. These words are living, Lord, they are active, and they are sharper than a double-edged sword. And may they pierce our hearts this morning. May they challenge us. May they encourage us and nourish us Lord, as a broken people who fail to see how broken we often are. Lord, we need you. Lord, speak to us. Lord, model for us and remind us, Lord, of this graciousness and this truth that we are called to. And Lord, the sweetness of your glory and your goodness, Lord, that you reveal to us in your text. Lord, we love you. Help us to draw near to you. And we pray this in God's holy and precious name. And all God's people say, amen. Amen. Well, most uh, great storytellers often start their stories in kind of a, a, a way that draws us in, that be, kind of begins and tells us some of the first things. Maybe they start to, to build a context or foundation or, or to show you and reveal this is the world, right, that we're going to create, and then we're going to fill in the characters and the dialogues in their proper places. So the beginning of most great stories, we start at a beginning. We start kind of building foundational pieces, right? Or we give snippets of the, the good things that are going to come and follow, right? To, to suck us in. Good movies and good storytellers even do that. Not just books. But in this case, in this story, we're not just coming upon a story. But what we're going to be reading is the prologue, the beginning of the story. The story that we're called to know the very best. We have our favorite books. This ought to be our most favorite story. We ought to know it well and to love it. And let me tell you, the Apostle John does. He's writing this towards the end of his life. He's had time to reflect on the personhood, the life and work of Jesus. And he's reflecting on it. And he's proclaiming these historical accounts and dialogues of the personal work of Jesus 
but he's given us a little bit of flavor too. He's, he's drawing us in and he's beginning to tell us the story in a storied format. And it's a beautiful story. It's a grand story. And like most great storytellers, he begins in kind of a, an epic fashion, right? We read stories to our children once upon a time, right? Dot, dot, dot. Right? It all started when, dot, dot, dot. But he says, in the beginning, dot, 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 right? And this is the greatest story. And it starts with this. And it says, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. So very, in the very first sentence, we have a major character. We're being introduced into this great story. And this person is called the word. As we walk through this passage, I'm going to teach you, right? Who is this word? What's he all about? What's going on? Because in this first line, we don't know what this is. This is a strange way to characterize the main person who we're talking about in the story. But he's called the word. And we see that he's with God, so there's some divine aspects, but then, oh wait, it says he was God, right? So this word, this character, this main central person is with God, so God is clearly plural, but yet he is God, there's a singular element, so we're already seeing a unity and plurality of the personhood of God right from the beginning. Already, we're beginning to see this. But who is this word, and when is this word being referred to? What's going on? Well, we know as we go through the gospel account, it's about the person and work of Jesus Christ. But a question that we ought to ask at the beginning, and we ought to ask questions of the scripture as we go through them, the question we ought to ask is this, in the beginning, is this beginning start talking about the beginning of Jesus's public ministry? around maybe 30 AD-ish or so, give or take a few years, the beginning of, of his full-time ministry as he goes throughout the land for three years, proclaiming grace and truth? Or is this the beginning of the universe that's being described? What beginning is this? Because it says in the beginning. Well, what John is masterfully doing, like great storytellers do, he's connecting to other things, things that his audience also would have known about, they would have heard about. And they would have heard about this great story. And Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so what John the Apostle is saying, he's saying, this guy who I'm writing about, his origin, it's not just around, right, four, six, you know, kind of BC, right around this time. No, 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 no. His origin is not first century. He actually is before all things. He is uniquely different than anything else. He is not created. His essence is before creation. And that's what he's doing. He's drawing us to connect John 1, 1 to Genesis 1, 1 and saying the main character, his foundations go far deeper and far longer than any other person possible. And we begin to see the skies, he's with God, but yet he, he is God from the very beginning. This word, right, and the, this logos, right, character is being described and the connection here is such that we're learning about this main character. If Genesis 1-1 is true about this John 1-1 character, well then, there's something really important about him being the creator and the creating agent. 
He's not just a first century character, but actually he is creating something, the world, out of nothing. That's when we hear the words ex nihilo. This is meaning creation out of nothing. This word is literally the medium in which life is being formed and having its existence. This person who I'm going to tell you about, this grand story, I'm opening you up to as about the person who created all things. He is the medium of existence itself. Right? The beginning says, and God spoke. He is being called Jesus, the Word, the actually the medium that's being spoken. He is the creating agent. Jesus, pre-incarnate, second member of the Trinity, is doing the work, right? Creation, fulfilling, accomplishing the will of the Father. And we're being taught that, woo, this is a pretty important person. There's a uh, there's a lot of importance attached to this uh, of, of cosmic proportions, right? Not just first century proportions, all right? And, and we're reminded and we're told this and taught this and we get this through context clues by looking at first, verse three. What does verse three say? Take a look. It says, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. This person who I'm going to tell you about, who, who's going to come in the flesh, right? Spoiler, right? Verse 14 is awesome, right? This person who's going to come, all things were made through this person, this flesh and blood person. All things were made. He's far more complex than you could possibly imagine. Or we're being told that all things are made through this word. Not anything has existed or has been made that has been made apart from the creating agent and process and its origin being sourced from this person who I'm going to tell you all about. He's the invisible force speaking life into all things. And all things find their beginning and their ends are connected to this person. Right? When you hear in the Bible say this person is the alpha and the omega, the first letter of the Greek alphabet, the last letter, right? Kind of these ideas of the beginning and kind of this end dynamic. Um, what we have here is a picture of this word being before the beginning, and he's there at the end of it all, of creation, right? And then in Christianity, theologians like to put a real nice fancy word to this. It's called the doctrine of the aseity of God, meaning this word character is wholly different. He is uncaused. He is devoid of dependence upon any other being for his source or his origin. Uniquely different in every other way. We have a source and origin. He is before all things, uncaused, devoid of dependence. He is God. He is. He has life in himself. He is sourced. His power resides in himself. This is different. When I look at modern movies like Iron Man, and I even remember as a child, Transformers, we see some of these characters. They have unique origins and source of their power, right? Iron Man, what does he have? He has this little mini arc reactor, right, that glows and emits light. That's kind of his source for power and charging up his cool suit, right? And then the Transformers, we have these glowing crystals, when I remember as a child, called Energon, right? And always going after the Energon and the, the, all the little cartoons I remember, Jesus is far more powerful than Iron Man or these Transformers, but yet he has a source greater, more powerful within himself, not dependent on, right, anything else. He's wholly different and unique. He gives life and he is light. 
He doesn't have something else that he's dependent upon. That's, we're being told this. And what's being connected here, John 1 to Genesis 1, is that he is the creator of all light itself. The sun, the moon, and the stars find their source and origin in this person. Do y'all have any idea how powerful the sun, our sun, actually is, which is one star in the cosmos? How hot it is, how big and powerful it is. And yet, it's one of many stars. It's an average star. Yet it emits lights and warms up all things. And he is the source and origin of this great power. If any of you have ever had a telescope and you've looked up actually to take a look at the sun, you know how powerful it is. Or if you were young and you actually took that challenge and tried to stare at the sun, you know, can feel how powerful the sun is. Or if you're like me and you like to hit the beach, Maybe you felt the power of the sun, right, and gotten a nice little sunburn. You know how powerful it is. Well, this person even gives source and life to things like that, infinitely more powerful. We often forget how powerful our God is. We think too small of him. We think of him as a small pocket-sized Jesus. He is not. He is far bigger. And John is saying, this is who he is. Y'all slow down in your life to realize how good and how big he is because he's divine. And what I'm going to tell you is a, is a great story, and you're going to see his humanity in the following pages. But he is divine also in his origin, not just human. He's both, capsulated into one. And we see the power of this person because in verse 5, the most powerful other element in the universe, darkness, and the cosmos, right, cannot even overtake him, cannot even overpower this person, this word, who is a light and life himself. And when we look at this idea of darkness, what is it? How is John wanting us to kind of understand the seemingly ethereal term of darkness? Well, yeah, the Bible does categorize darkness oftentimes as sin, as evil, right, immoral behavior, but it's also that which is devoid of God's holy presence, his pleasure. It's that which is anti or against his revealed will, right? And it's even a place called hell, which is devoid of his presence for all eternity. That which is against God will never and has never overcome God. That's what he's saying. The greatest of all enemies, he's telling us at the beginning of the story, will never claim victory over the greatest hero. That's good news, and you get that good news in verse 5, right? Because these are also precursors to the greatest of the darkness, this death, right? But we know this death is not going to swallow up our Savior. But we're getting imagery, right, kind of already the beginning of the story that's ushering into, ooh, there's coming beauty in the following pages. And so he brings us in and he says, not even the greatest power of darkness of sin or evil or death will claim victory over God who is light. But yet, God in his mercy and his grace and his truth, because we often fail to take in his beauty, his grandeur. We are fickle people who forget, right, to his prophets, his scriptures, and fail to remember his beautiful truth and how great it is. He is kind to you and I, fickle people, and he sends us a messenger to prepare the way, to remind us good news is coming, buckle up, right? Move out of our religious apathy 
and know that there's good news coming. And so he sends a lesser light to pave the way for the true light. And who is that person? It's John. Good question for you to ask is, well, which John? It's a lot of Johns in the Bible, right? John's a popular name today. So which John is this? Is John, in verses 6 through 8, is he going to pat himself on the back and say, the Lord sent me, and I'm here to give you all good news? You know, kind of big man on campus, like, no big deal. I'm paving the way for the Savior, all right? He is not, all right? He is not showboating. But he's telling us of a person who came before. He's going to tell us of the, of the greatest and last of the Old Testament prophets, John the Baptist. And he is going to come and bear witness to the light. In verses 6 through 8, a man sent by God, this is who he is. There is a man sent by God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light. That all might believe through him and through his witness. But he, John the Baptist, was not the light, but came to wear a witness about the light. Why does John the Apostle slip that in there? Well, he's had time to reflect on even the, the, the work of John the Baptist. And what many of us don't actually realize, John the Baptist was a very popular fellow in his day and age. A very popular fellow. A lot of people followed him. And a lot of people confused him with the Messiah being the light. Right There had been 400 years of prophetic silence, and the people of God are like, please send us somebody to tell us about God, to show us the way. Boom, he comes. A lot of people think, oh, this is the guy we've been waiting for. John looks back and says, yeah, he was a big guy in the day and age, but he's not the guy because he's making way for the guy. Just like the Bible and Old Testament prophets said, there's going to be a forerunner who comes to pave the way. And John is reminding even his audience, John the Baptist was great, but he wasn't the greatest. Author of life was going to come after him. And that's a big deal. And like any story, let me just fill in a few gaps of who this John the Baptist character, what he was kind of like. He was a wild man. So you know, he would eat honey and locusts. He wore rough clothing, but he spoke with great spiritual force. And clearly, yes, he baptized people in the Jordan River in the water as well. I liken him to be a far more infinitely powerful and holy, but yet also grizzled Paul Revere. The difference, his message was not the British are coming. His message was God, maker of heaven and earth. He is coming. And y'all should pay attention because eternal consequences come with this person, right? Not just temporal. And so he says, this guy is coming. Pay attention to the one who comes after me, whose sandals I am not even worthy to untie, right? Kind of that kind of language-esque, right? Well, this good news comes to us in verses 9 through 14. And this is the word becoming flesh. And this is what the Lord says through his person, John, the apostle. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world. And the world was made through him, but yet the world did not know him. He came to his own. His own people did not receive him. He's saying God came to earth to his people. Divinity came in obscurity for you. He's going to come to lose so you might win. That's what he's saying. Um... And he's saying he's coming in lowliness. Did, did Jesus, the word, the one who is a second member of the Trinity, who knew fullness, deity indwelled, 
Did he come and even, was he even birthed in a, a beautiful four walls with medical doctors with fragrant smelling things all around him, right? He was not. He was born in lowly obscurity, right? Kind of in a manger and a feed trough. Even wrapped in clothes typically reserved for those who would be wrapped up before they're dead. Not, not glory, not good. And then even the earthly king wanted to kill him because he's hearing of this small child who would be called a king. And so there's even a death warrant for this small child who's even, right, raised in obscurity. And then this person comes, does he take a, a beautiful white collar job crushing it in the Roman government? Is that how this person comes in pomp and circumstance, crushing everybody, reminding him how much better he is than everybody, which he is, but does he do that? He does not. He takes a blue collar job as a carpenter and he lives his life. He's obedient, he's faithful. He loves his people, loves his family. And he, he came to serve, right? And he serves his people well. And this is the person who we're called to look to. And he's called the light of the world. Not because he's shining light on himself, but because the Father above is the one who shines light on him. And him, the service and the love and the grace that he pours out on his people, right? This is the person and what we're told is this person who is giving sight to the blind, who's healing the lame, right? Who's raising some from the dead. He's casting out demons from people who are tormented both physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. Um, we're told that he's rejected in your passage. That's what he tells us. I think when John tells us that this word was rejected by his own, that's a soft word saying he was rejected. His family didn't even, even believe in him. One of the most, right, James, until after, much later, right? Family, friends ridiculed him. His own tribe, his own people picked up stones to bludgeon him to death because he claimed to be God with I am statements, right? Which John has seven of those in his gospel, right? And so rejection is a really a soft word to say of how he was treated, how awesome he was, right? But verses 12 and 13, take a look there. But to those who believed, right? Not just in his humanity, which was easy for us to see, but also in his divinity. He gave the right to become children of God, Right? the right of adoption, that you would be God's children and you would know him, you would be in his family for all time, that you would actually be connected to the source and origin of both life and light forevermore, not just now, but forever. And also, the Bible tells us that we would also have his spirit that he would give to us, right? And that would actually emanate light, and even illuminate the text, this Bible, this word, so that we would see it as light and good news, that it would change us, that we would get this. But when we believe that this person is good, that he is powerful, that he's awesome, that he's beautiful, that he actually begins to change us from the inside out, right? And that's actually what's being told here. Because reality is, is we are the walking spiritual dead, Right, I love that actually TV show, so I like to use illustrations like this. But we really are the walking spiritual dead. That's what the Bible tells us. Apart from him breathing life into you, you have no life in yourself. We often like to think we can do a whole lot more than we can actually do, picking ourselves up by our bootstraps, right? But let me tell you, 
of eternal value and real lasting legacy, we can't do much. And the Bible says actually we can do nothing of eternal value apart from the person and work of Jesus Christ being in us and there being life and light for us to emanate to others for good news, right? But the good news is this, this light we're being told about is coming into the world to lose so we might win, right? Here, verse 14, the word became flesh, right, and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only son and father full of grace and truth. John's talking about the resurrection there, the good news. He's seen the end. He's seen the result of the good news, right? But the rejection comes before the glory, right? The death comes before the life comes. And what we begin to see here is that the Lord, as he comes in flesh, he comes to die for you and and for me, right? So that we might have resurrection life. We might have resurrection power that we might also have his life and might actually do good and be empowered to do good in this life. Jesus wasn't just hanging out in a heavenly Airbnb and I was like, oh man, my people are up to shenanigans again. I've got to come down to them and help them. He came to die for you so you might have life. He might breathe power into you, grace into you, so that you might not be steeped in darkness for all life. You might know victory over sin. You might actually have hope when there's despair and anxiety, right, and depression. We are spiritually needy people. You're physically needy people, right? We're emotionally needy people, and God has not left us. The greatest news is that God is with us and he draws near to us and it's his kindness to us, him drawing near to us that leads us to repentance for our lack, right, of gratefulness, our religious apathy, our small-minded and pocket-sized Jesuses that we all have. And he draws near to us and gives us grace and mercy for those things. Right? And it's that kind of graciousness that leads us to repentance. Right? And, and enables us to want to love him and to love others. So what are we called to? I'm going to close by reading just kind of this passage. I think is a beautiful passage. Colossians chapter 1. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and in earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and are for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to him all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you and I, right, who were once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, darkness, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by the death in order to present you and I holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel, as you have heard from which I have proclaimed to you in all creation under heaven, in which I became a minister, Paul. He's reminding you that Jesus Christ, who is fully God, left heaven so that you might experience heaven one day. 
He dies so you might never have to die the death of a thousand deaths, eternal death, so that you might know life. And we are called to marvel at this great story. My friends, our, my call and my challenge and application to you is that we might repent of our lack of being fascinated, being captivated by this story. Too often we read this and we have lost or we read through too quickly and we don't see the beauty of this story, the implications of this story. And John reminds us of the bigness of the grandeur as he connects it and he says this is the God of the universe who we're talking about, not pocket-sized Jesus. And so, my friends, repent of your small-sized Jesus and, and see the glory of who he is. Because when you do, you'll want to tell other people about him. When you see how good and how big he is, how big your sin is and how great his light is, you'll want to tell people about him. So let's repent so that we might proclaim the goodness and beauty of him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you give us grace, Lord, because we are people who don't see you as great and as big, who we often don't see your story as that amazing. Lord, forgive us for that. Lord, thank you for even this beginning, this prologue of the greatest story of all stories, Lord, that you have reminded us of who you are, Lord, what you have come to do. And it is, Lord, to pour out grace. You have come to die for our sins and give us life and light. Lord, in the mission of your people, the church, Lord, is that we might also be, Lord, lights, Lord, to the nations, that we might share of your bigness, your awesomeness, Lord, of your truth, and we might share it with others, Lord, because, Lord, you call other people to yourself. Help us to draw near to you, to repent, Lord, of our apathy, Lord, but also, Lord, help us to be grateful for the graciousness and the mercy that, Lord, you lavish upon us. Lord, we love you. We need you, Lord. Remind us of how big you truly are. And all God's people said, amen.